So this evening, I would like to look at, in a way, put what we're going to do from tomorrow onward uh, into context. So this is a sun retreat, and so we're going to suggest from tomorrow onward uh, to practice sun, which actually is a very simple practice. I'll explain it more tomorrow morning. And it was devised as a very simple, portable practice. And it consists in just sitting, walking, standing, lying down, going about your day, and just silently, inwardly, asking a question. What is this? And so that's all you do. So at that level, it's very simple. <laughs> but tomorrow morning, I'll explain in more detail. And so I know of, uh, diff I mean, some people have been on this retreat before, so of course they're familiar with the question, what is this? Uh, some people have come from other Zen tradition when they don't use a question, and then, of course, some people have come from a more mindfulness-based practice. So, because we're all sitting together, I would like to put a little the practice, this practice in context. Because often, uh, different practices are presented to us a little bit as being in competition. And so often it's presented, one is more complete, one is a shortcut, etc., etc. But personally, uh, for 10 years, I practiced just with this, just this question, what is this? And I found it very helpful. And I could see very quickly, in a way, that it worked. And then, uh, when I came back to live in England, I encounter mindfulness practice. And I did a few retreats of that, and I thought, hmm, this is a nice practice too. This too works. <laughs> and in a way, what I realized over time of encountering different practices is that generally, if it's a Buddhist practice, in terms of meditation practice, then generally it will have two main components. And this is something that uh, the teacher of the temple where we trained, Song Gwangsa in uh, South Korea, the teacher there used to tell us every, uh, every season, because we used to sit uh, a little like this, but a little more intense, because uh, we used to do this for three months at a time. And we used to sit for like 15 minutes, five zero, and walk for 10 minutes. But when we tried it out on the ordinary Western people, uh, I mean, at the end of the weekend, they could not really walk. So we thought maybe we have, maybe we have to adapt. You know, instead of sitting 10 times, 50 minutes, maybe we sit, you know, 30 minutes, different time. Uh, and 
it works as well. But one thing that he kept saying to us every season was, Song Song Jok Jok, you have to cultivate Song Song Jok Jok. And so basically what he was telling us is that we have to cultivate calmness and alertness together. That in a way when we cultivate meditation, on one side we cultivate what I would call nowadays anchoring, what we might, other people might call concentration, might call focusing. You could say paying attention to a specific object. So there is a part of the practice where we use an object, that it be the breath, that it be the body, that it be the sound, that it be a question. And so in a way that object becomes like an anchor. And so often the idea, you see, often people think that the idea of the concentration is actually to develop a permanent concentrated state. I mean, some people can do that, but in order to do that, you really need very, very specific circumstances. But what we're trying to do within the framework of this retreat is that to some degree we develop, we cultivate, we continue to hold a certain degree of concentration, focusing, paying attention. Nowadays I use the term anchoring because to, to be careful with the idea that when we sit in meditation, for example, the anchor, the object, has to be grasped at and we have to stick to it all the time. Because I presume today you've tried to be aware of the breath, the body, the sound, and you might have noticed you could not stick to them all the time. And I don't think that's an idea actually as much as we use the object as a mean to anchor us in what is going on now, to bring us back, as Stephen was mentioning, to what is going on now in a multi-perspectival way. And so, in a way, the anchoring, why I use the term anchor, is to imagine that what we try to do when we pay attention, when we focus, when we anchor, it's a little bit like the anchor of a boat. You have an anchor which anchors a boat, but it does not mean the boat does not move. But it means the boat does not move too far and does not hurt other boats and doesn't get lost at sea. The boat is not immobile but it is out of the danger zone. It's in the harmless zone, one could say. And so in a way that's what we do, that it be the breath, the sound, or the question. 
we come back to it. And I think it's very important to see that one of the main effects of the practice is actually this coming back. That's what time to time Stephen in the sitting would say, try to come back. Try to come back, not that we cannot think, because of course we're going to think. Especially on the first day of a retreat. We kind of you know very much with what happened and what's going to happen when we leave the retreat. We kind of the first day. I personally was trying to really be here, but I was thinking of this scientific research. And you know, how can I help the people with the meditation? And I was then trying back to the question, back to the question. So it's kind of like we bring things with us and then as we try to sit here, you could say we have nothing else to do but think about things. Because in daily life, you do many different things. Here, the only thing left for us, especially if we sit on the cushion, is just to think. So that's what's going to happen. And within that, we're trying to bring some kind of a space within it instead of being kind of stuck with the different thought we have, trying to bring some space within it. And we bring space within it by coming back to the anchor. And through that anchoring, through that coming back to the breath, to the sound, or to the question, actually over time, they can be more calm. And so there is really one aspect of the practice which is about calming. But calming not as repressing ourselves, no matter what, I must be calm. We're not talking about that kind of calm. But calming as in stabilizing. So that we're not feeling that we kind of in a turmoil, or that we're not feeling like we're overwhelmed, but that things can flow. There can be different things flowing in our experience. So in a way, the, this calming element, this stealing element, is really about kind of finding some space, some stability, some balance within what is arising right now. It could be some thought, it could be some feeling, it could be some sensation, it could be some sound. I mean, at one point today, wasn't it interesting? We're sitting here, and then we heard this strange metallic sound moving from there to there to there. And at first I thought, is it in the garden? They said, no, 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 it must be outside. We don't have such a machine here. And then, oh, it was gone. And then a little later, you heard it coming back. <laughs> but just, we're sitting here, and just listening to the sound. And in a way, what do we do with the sound? Can we have the sound, be aware of the sound, aware of the sound changing? And at the same time, sitting here, we have everybody else around it with this 
a certain level of space, of calm, of stillness. So that's what this element of calm, of anchoring is about. And this is used in most meditation practice, Buddhist meditation practice, but other practice as well. This stabilizing, this calming element can be used in reciting a name of a special person or object, in a mantra, using the breath, the sound, the question. And generally there is the same idea, we just come back, come back, come back, which creates a little bit of space, of stillness, of calm. And then there is a second element. And so the way we different practices use anchoring is generally a little similar, this coming back, coming back. But the second element, this, as uh, Master Kuzan used to say, song song, so that's alertness, that bright, bright. And this refers to the other part of the meditation which is as important, which is about looking deeply, questioning, exploring, experientially. In some practices it's reflecting experientially, depending which tradition you are in. And so this can be talked as vipassana. In the Korean song, it will be talked about song song, questioning. In other tradition, it will be different things. This is done in quite a different ways. So in a more mindfulness practice, you would be looking more at the impermanence, changing nature of what goes on. In terms of the Zen song practice, it's really this questioning, just in a way using the question to really question. Then through that you have the alertness, through that you have the brightness, you have the clarity. And so whenever you, lo you look at the Buddhist meditation, you can find these two elements. There will be an anchoring element, concentrating, focusing, paying attention element, coming back element, which generally will help us to develop calm and stillness. But there also will be another element which will help us to develop clarity, to develop uh, alertness, to develop brightness, to also develop understanding seeing things more clearly. So when we tomorrow go into start this practice of questioning, then actually again, we're going to do something a little similar than it if we were doing mindfulness meditation, but again, in a different way, with a different method. And personally, as I'll mention tomorrow, I think they can actually combine together. Personally, I think they're not in competition, but they're different aspects of the practice that sometimes can complement each other. But I'll talk more about it tomorrow.
Then another thing I wanted to look at a little bit was to look at, in a way, there more kind of the wider framework of the son practice. And so, at one level, uh, if you look at the son practice, or you're generally more familiar with Zen practice, you have lots of books about Zen, Zen flesh, Zen bones, and generally with Zen, uh, you have koans, and generally you have weird encounters and master doing weird things. <laughs> and one of the things you might have heard is one of these stories where uh, the answer to a question is, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill the Buddha. And if you're familiar with uh, that, I kind of see it uh, different places when I read uh, stuff. And then you might think, here you have uh, especially Stephen, who is known for his uh, secular Buddhism, and here he's asking you to bow to what looked like a statue there and a statue there, which is not very secular, is it? <laughs> and I wanted to kind of a little see the context that this is in a way very important for us to honor uh, where we trained and what we receive from the tradition in which we trained. And so I was in Korea for 10 years and Stephen was in Korea for six years and we benefited greatly from this tradition. And within this tradition, of course, there is this slightly iconoclastic thing. But there is also the respect of the tradition, the respect of what it means to follow a path, to cultivate something together. And so in a way we kind of use a bowing as a means to connect with the tradition. I think we have to be a little careful when we talk about modern Buddhism or secular Buddhism or modern meditation that actually we think we reinventing it or we inventing it all again. For whatever reason recently we got a huge package when we arrived here and actually it's a set of eight books on Korean Buddhism and organized by the main Korean order and all this translated in English. And so I kind of started to look at these uh, books, kind of the huge books. And what is very interesting is two volumes are about the reformation of Korean Buddhism from 1830 to 1930, which was actually quite a dark time for Korean Buddhists because there was different political thing, there was occupation, there was lots of things, and they really at their weak point. But even at their weak point, there was actually, they were actually trying to reinvent themselves already. I think each tradition is reinventing itself all the time. 
So what we're doing is not, when one talk about secular Buddhism or modern Buddhism, I don't think, you know, we kind of just kind of staying in the tradition to reinvent itself again and again. But within this various reinvention, there is also a little, how can we have a little thread, a little thread which talks little about what's the basis? Why are we all here for? Because we come from many different angles, many different ideas. And so actually the bowing is a little bit of connecting to that thread. So that we do three bow. And so we bow to the Buddha, we bow to the Dharma, we bow to the Sangha. So we could see as bowing to the Buddha, bowing to the Buddha statue, but actually not. We bowing, when we bow, we bow to our own Buddha nature, to our own potential. And this is something which is very specific about son in a way, is this idea that we are a Buddha already. And the only thing we need to do is be it. But we know we're not Buddha-like all the time. So in a way, what is interesting when we do this bow, we're kind of bowing to that potential, but we're also bowing to the fact that at time, yes, we can be bright, we can be clear, we can be compassionate, we can be wise. And so in a way, we could also see a retreat as helping us to dissolve some of the obstacles from us having that wisdom, having that compassion, having that clarity. But also recognizing the moment, acknowledging the moment where we are clear, we are compassionate. We are wise, and so in a way, we're also bowing to the experience of it. And we're also bowing to the potential of it. Then there is a dharma. The dharma can be the teaching. But the dharma is very much the practice. The practice that we have to do ourselves. I think this is what is very special about meditation, is that Nobody can do it for us. It's, but it's also its advantage. I can do it all by myself. So this is really each of us, myself, Stephen, each of you. When you bow to the Dharma, you are basically taking refuge in your own practice. In the past practice you've done, in the practice you're going to do now. And then we have to be careful that we're not thinking of a perfect practice, of an ideal practice. I mean, at the moment you have 55 uh, participants in this retreat. And sometimes I would say you have 110. You have the one actually existing. And next to each one, you have the idealized 
perfect practitioner who has no thought, no pain, and slightly floating above the cushion. And then you compare yourself to him or her, if only. But they don't exist. And what is beautiful about a retreat of uh, seven days is to see how it's changing. At times we are really alert and bright. At times we are a little sleepy and vague. At times we are a little kind of, when is he going to do the clapper? <laughs> At time already? It was so f quick. So in a way the practice has many different forms. And also it's very important, not just the practice in this room, but also the practice when we are in nature, the practice when we, we're working, the practice when we're eating. But at the moment it's quite good because uh, it's very nice weather, so you can eat outside. But when it's raining, everybody's kind of you know, sitting next to each other, kind of eating mindfully, a little self-conscious. Yeah, you have more space. But uh, to me, this is one of the great places is when we, we eat in silence. It's interesting. We could all be very comfortable with each other, eating in silence, taking the time to eat, to be aware. And then sometimes this little oh, self-consciousness. And just to be aware of that. Can I relax? Can I learn to relax? when I am in the silence, when I, I am with others in a different way. So all of this is practice. Waiting for the shower is practice. Going to the bathroom after somebody has done a big one is also practice. There are a lot of opportunity to practice. Working together, washing the dishes. This is also practice. So in a way, when we bow to the Dharma, we're bowing to all the different ways we can practice. And then we bow to the Sangha. We take refuge in the Sangha. And that is a community. Of course, some people can really benefit from sitting on their own. It's true. Some people really benefit from that. But most people really benefit from sitting together, from practicing together. And there is something about that, of just the fact that we're all here together. And this, in a way, inspires us. In a way, each person is inspiring the other person. And so people think, wow, they sit, wow, amazing. And then somebody thinks, gosh, I'm feeling so sleepy, but this one, you feel, wow. You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, we also often assume the other one as a better practice, but it depends. And we all in it together. And we all, in a way, contributing to it. And so when we do that third bar, it's really taking refuge, bowing to the fact that we come together that there is a shared interest in wisdom, in compassion, in clarity, in brightness. 
And so, in a way, when we do this little ritual, it's kind of like doing it through the body, to just taking the time to do this kind of thing we're not used to do. I remember long ago when I used to be the translator for Master Cousin in America, long ago. And he would ask me to tell people they needed to bow to it three times before they could uh, have a little interview chat with him. And I felt so awkward telling, telling this American egalitarian people that, you know, you need to bow three times to this little, you know, guy. And they generally, okay, well, all right, we'll do it. But what he explained to me that it's not that he wanted them to bow to him, but he wanted them to take the time to move from being a busy person visiting this funny person to, okay, I'm going to bow three times and I'm going to shift speed. I'm going to shift direction. And so that's why he wanted these three bows. So when we do the bowing, it's a little like that too. That in the bowing, we can, okay, let's just do it. Just do it. And that shift a little what we do at that moment, instead of being a little bit kind of lost in our thought and what we're going to do and how is it's going to be. Because it's interesting how often we are little tiny bit ahead of our time. I come to the meditation, I already know how it's going to be. Or I fear how it's going to be. I'm kind of a little ahead of myself. And then with the three bar, okay, let's just be here, just doing this, and then I sit. And then the sitting is whatever happened at that moment. And then, in a way, you have the, the two statues. One is a Buddha, so this is kind of the, you could say, the founder, the originator of what we're doing, which has been reinventing many times since. And then over there, you have Kwan Seum, Kanon, Kwan Yin, Alalo, Kiteshvara, Bodhisattva, which in China, and then in Korea too, became female when it started out in India male. It's kind of nice kind of transmutation that happened there historically. And so in a way when we bow, so in the morning we'll bow to the Buddha, evening we'll bow to the uh, to the compa to the Bodhisattva of compassion. And in a way also I think when we orient toward compassion Again, to see this is, because when we sit in meditation, and so during this uh, practice of what is this, we're really actually not going to do loving kindness meditation or compassion meditation or anything of that nature. And we, we might talk about compassion in the loving kindness in the talks, but not in terms of the practice. But to see that the practice of the questioning is totally embedded in this altruistic, 
compassionate orientation. So in a way, when we bow to the Bodhisattva of compassion, we're really bowing, we're really orienting. We see it as an orientation. We kind of moving our intention toward creative, wise compassion. And so in a way, to see that this practice of questioning is within a wide framework. And one of the components is really compassion. Compassion in terms of ourselves, compassion in terms of others. But not to see just as feeling a certain way, but very much being available to the suffering of others. Because in a way that's the name of the Bodhisattva. She's the one who hears the cry of the world. She's also seen as the one who sees the suffering of the world and is available to it. And so in a way, but in order to be, avo to be available to suffering is not easy. Because when we're available to suffering, open to suffering, generally we're going to experience unpleasant feeling tone. It's not fun to be with suffering. So in order to be with suffering, to, be, to bring that creativity, that wisdom, that compassion to suffering, we need to cultivate stability. We need to cultivate clarity. So, and it's within that kind of uh, direction that we cultivate the questioning. So we cultivate the questioning to develop the stability, to develop the clarity, which then will help us to really develop, manifest this creative, wise compassion. And this brings me back to the practice. That why do I say that I started to do this questioning in the monastery? And very quickly, I saw it worked. Within six months, I really saw it worked. But what was interesting to me, the way it worked, was that it made me more clear in a mindful way. And retrospectively, I realized that actually you can cultivate mindfulness directly, as in cultivating mindfulness practice of the breath, of the body, of the sound, of the feeling tone, of the mental state, etc. Or you can cultivate the question, and through questioning the, the question, actually you develop mindfulness. So I think we have to see that different practices often will lead us to a similar experience in some way. So through the questioning itself, which at one level doesn't seem to have anything to do with mindfulness, actually makes you more mindful. Not only mindful of ourselves, but mindful of others. And I think one of the reasons is because, like all practices, slowly 
he dissolves selfing, self-referencing. And this is one of the symbols of this, actually, this kind of uh, dissolution, disappearance of this selfing, being so self-centered or just kind of being kind of focused on ourselves is actually the three things we offer. We offer light, we lead the candle, we offer incense, we lead the incense, and then we put some water. And each, it's because it's a symbol in Korean song, it's a symbol of what we do. So the candle, it has different Symbol one is the fact that as it gives light, it disappears. So it's, uh, that's why it's a symbol of this selfing dissolving. But also, what is interesting with the candle is that now it's opaque. But when I lit the candle, it bec- it illuminates, so you can see more around it. But also, it is illuminating. It becomes more luminous within itself. So, you know, that's what we try to become with the practice. That the selfing goes down, so we more open to others. But we become also more illuminating for others, but also illuminating for ourselves. Then you have the incense. The incense, again, it gives a fragrance as it disappears. So again, dissolution of this, fixing, selfing, solidifying. And at the same time, it spread the fragrance. But it spread the fragrance equally. The incense doesn't say, oh, I like that one, so I'll go that way. That one, not really. Pooh, I'm not going that way. It just goes all over. And this is really, in a way, an idea which is strong in the Buddhist practices of equanimity. And often people feel equanimity is about nearly like kind of like kind of a weird indifference to anything. Actually, that's not what equanimity is about. Equanimity is about balance, but it's also about this equality to everything, so that we regard everybody with the same equality. So in a way, we spread our interest, our compassion, equally to everybody. So this really idea of widening our circle. And then you have the last one, is we offer the water. And the water is again, uh, as to symbol, one of, is that it reflects. It reflects anything that come above it but it doesn't keep anything. So in a way, this is what we're trying to develop with the mindfulness practice, is that we are mindful in a wide way. And notice this. 
This is not, he says. Whatever your anchor, the breath, the body, the sound, or the question, when you go away from the, quest from the question or the breath, for example, you actually go into the very small bit of your experience. The past, the future, some idea. You go into a very small part of what's going on now. And you're really not here. And then you hear a sound, like that truck or whatever it was passing, whoop, and you come back here. And when you come back to the question, to the breath, to the sound, you come back to the whole thing. And then you see the whole thing in the same way that on water, everything would be reflecting just as. And the water would not say, oh, I don't like that one. I'm not going to reflect it. Or this one, oh, I'll improve it a little, you know. I like it so much. No, it will just see it as it arises, as it appears. And also another thing with the water is the fact that it's flowing. And so from that, it's adaptable, it's flexible. And to me, this is one of the quality. And that's why uh, I continue uh, to teach the sound practice, uh, what is this? Because I feel that there is a special quality to that practice. Each practice, the breath, the sound, or any practice, has a slight different effect. And again, we can talk more about this at some other time. And I feel that the slight specificity of this questioning, questioning without looking for an answer, actually helps us to be like flowing water. It helps us to be more flexible, to be more adaptable. Because often, because of that selfing, we have a strong sense, I am like this, I am like that. And in a way, with the questioning, we say, what is this? We're actually questioning that solidity that, in a way, that kind of uh, fixity. Recently, I had a very funny experience. It was Stephen's birthday, so it's a long time we've not been. We went to a special restaurant. Many years we've not been to such a restaurant. So, so okay, it's his birthday, special birthday, let's go. 65, you know, retirement age in England, so this is special pension coming, possibly. <laughs> so off we go to the restaurant. And so it's one of these three restaurants so they ask you, you know, what you cannot eat. So I told them and I'm a little difficult. And then there was still something I could not eat so they had to give me something else. And then something comes. And Stephen look at it, looks aghast. I look at it and I think, ah! They brought this, and I had not eaten this, maybe for 55 years, out of ethics and different things. And then I thought, it's Stephen's birthday, the poor guy, let's eat this. There's not too much of it. So you know, I surprised myself, because I was somebody who never, ever, ate this stuff. 
And in our region, people eat this stuff as a delicacy all the time. And I thought, okay, come on, you can do it. So I did, so I surprised myself. For once, I could be a person who could eat this, even if I had not. So in a way, to me, the question is a little bit like that, kind of questioning. It's just like that. It's never going to change, but that actually, you cannot, it doesn't mean that I will eat this again. <laughs> but there can be some flexibility. There can be some choice. There can be some creativity. And I think very much that's what the practice is about. So. So we have uh, a little time. If there is uh, some question or if there are some comments. Yes? Okay, so you could not hear f over there. This is just to, in a way, uh, so the question was that the person is puzzled about the question. And one could say this is the purpose of the exercise. But tomorrow, this will become really clear. Because the instruction will be about the question, how to do it, and there are many different ways to do it, and really, uh, what's how to do this practice. So here, I just wanted to bring the context within which uh, that question uh, is uh, practiced and developed. And then tomorrow in the instruction, we're going to get the step-by-step -step, uh, about how to do it. But uh, the point of it <laughs> is to be puzzled by it. <laughs> because really, uh, it will become clear tomorrow, this is really a practice of questioning and this is not a practice of answering. This is what is very special, I would say, about this question. 